the podcast for the inquisitive diver. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, yeah, my, my name's Kate Parker and I am from Sheffield, just the other side of the Pennines from you. Um, and I uh, grew up in England, uh, probably was quite obsessed with the ocean from a young age, but didn't get to spend much time in it being in a fairly landlocked place in the UK. But then I started traveling uh, around about 2011, 2012 and learned how to dive and got into scuba diving and um, just kind of really cemented my love for the oceans and how fascinating everything was. And that started a ball rolling into getting various certificates and did my dive masters in Kotal and eventually moved over here to Melbourne in 2014 and um, started working in diving in Melbourne just on the weekends for fun. And eventually uh, ended up going to see a screening of a documentary that was being hosted by Sea Shepherd in Melbourne. And that really just started a, a huge snowball into joining the Sea Shepherd onshore crew, doing some volunteering with them, uh, which eventually turned into offshore volunteering, which then led to me joining the Australian Coast Guard um, and, and spending a lot of time training with those guys. And uh, more recently, setting up my own uh, conservation-based project uh, around supporting women to get into marine industries. So it really all came from that one chance viewing of a documentary with Sea Shepherd back in 2014, 15, I think it was. And it's led me on a, a path to various marine based conservation voluntary activities. So, yeah, it's been it's been an interesting road. <laughs> do you actually do you have any time for yourself? Uh, no, uh, <laughs> I sleep. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I really enjoy um, everything that I do, though, and I, I feel like uh, I get so much back from from the voluntary work that I do. Uh, it, it gives me so much joy that I don't really mind how much time it takes out of my day to day. But yes, I probably have oversubscribed myself somewhat. <laughs> yeah, but I, th- I suppose it falls into that bracket of, you know, do what do what you enjoy, do what you love. That's exactly right. And it's that work life balance. So I have a career as a speech pathologist and I, um, I enjoy my job but my passion would definitely be around ocean conservation and I'm very lucky and fortunate to be in a position that I can um, manage both of those so I can get time off work to go and do my voluntary offshore crewing with Sea Shepherd and I have a very supportive team that allow me to to yeah have that work-life balance um, yeah pretty stoked with the way that I've managed to get things set up. <laughs> I'm, cu- I'm curious what what's a, a speech pathologist? So a speech pathologist is somebody who helps anyone communicate if they've got issues with communication. There's also a little bit around head and neck anatomy and swallowing difficulties. But when you train as a speech pathologist, you train in all areas from, you know, newborns all the way up to end of life. And then you specialize. So my specialism is in mainstream schools. So I support children who are struggling to access the curriculum based through language difficulties or communication difficulties, whether it's understanding or verbalizing what they want to say or articulation issues or social pragmatic issues like autism cohort or, you know, any, any situation, literacy difficulties, any situation where they're not really able to engage with communication, um, our team will be able to support them to access the curriculum. Sounds pretty pretty damn interesting. Does that cover all, like, um, is dyslexia involved in that as well? Yeah, so a lot of our work is moving into that literacy space and supporting children with literacy difficulties, yeah. Mm. So a lot of, co- it's, to be honest, it's mostly consultative what I'm doing, so it's a lot of coaching of teaching staff how to communicate, yeah. 
Um, and I, I picked up on you. You said uh, uh, you mentioned it briefly the other day that um, you did your training, your dive training in uh, Kotal. Sure did. <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? It seems like everybody that comes on this show has been to Kotal at some point in their uh, dive career. That's it. And, and you were there as well. Which um, which dive centre was it? I was. <laughs> yeah, Big Blue. Yeah, Big Blue. I was with Sari Cottage. And that that was with. Um, I can't remember what you said the other day. Trevor and Barry bit, were running it when I was there. Of... I'm not sure if it's changed hands much, but yeah, the two Irish brothers. So yeah, it was um, a wild time, as you can imagine. I think there was eight of us who went through and did our um, <laughs> dive masters at the same time. So lots of, uh, what do they call it? The snorkel run or whatever at the end um, parties on Kotao, as you can imagine. I'm still in touch with a lot of them. I'm not sure how many of them are still working in diving, but yeah, it was a really cool experience. And um yeah, I'm really glad that we decided we were traveling, my, my friend and I, and we'd done our open water and then our advance and then a rescue and like everyone else, just kind of sacrificed some of our travel time to to do that certificate. And I'm actually really glad that I did because when I, mm. like I said, when I moved to Melbourne, I got into diving here and that funded a lot of like the, the pay that I got from that. I just bought all of my own dive gear with. So it, it taught me about diving in cooler waters and I ended up doing my dry, dry suit diving. certain. So, yeah, it definitely opened a lot of doors for me. And just to make you more confident in the water. I mean, I haven't worked as a dive master in a while, but it's always nice to feel that level of confidence when you do go back into it and you sort of know what you're doing. I think it's definitely worthwhile doing mm even if you don't work as a dive master yeah yeah just having that experience especially with what you're doing with sea shepherd now as well and um you know you never know you never know what you're going to get into absolutely yeah if we um get prop fouled someone's going to get in the water and get the rope out from our engines so <laughs> <laughs> yeah anyone with a diving certificate in sea shepherd is handy <laughs> hey now just just saying about sea shepherd and diving what's the what's the go with the diving element of sea shepherd yeah, so one of the um, campaigns that I run or set up in Australia as part of uh, Sea Shepherd is the Sea Shepherd Dive Campaign. Um, it's only currently in Australia and New Zealand, but it's basically a way that we're trying to set up a network of dive schools that have the same environmental focus as us. And by partnering with these dive schools, we can um, set up a network so that people who want to dive somewhere where they know um, the dive school is going to uphold the same environmental values, they can find us on find those dive schools on our website um, and then just contact those dive schools and go diving with them so we have certain standards that the dive schools have to meet and that's around things like obviously like not anchoring on coral reefs and making sure you're disposing of your waste appropriately and and single-use plastics and those kind of things like ocean-based things and if the dive schools can agree to those mm. rules then they can partner with us and then we can promote them and they can sell our merchandise through their stores and if they want to do dive cleanups we can send onshore volunteers to support them so it's kind of like a business partnership but the whole the whole ethos being to sort of drive industry standards up so that a lot of our dive schools you know they really want to come onto the program they're striving to be really environmentally focused but they might sell fishing equipment in their dive store or something like that and so by having these rules hopefully we're inspiring people to, all right and we have had this happen before we said you take your fishing equipment out of your dive store and you can join the program and they have and that's just then helped to sort of reduce that impact on the ocean of of sport fishing and, and recreational fishing so yeah it's a, it's an idea to set up a network network throughout australia and new zealand and hopefully we could move it into the global market but at the minute we're just trying to get that network going over here um so that we can have a whole host of environmentally focused dive schools that people can go to that's the plan anyway <laughs> 
<laughs> Does it cost the dive school anything? They've got to subscribe each month? Yeah, so they that? pay us a subscription to be part of the program. And then in return, they get uh, benefits. So they get things like discount and merchandise that they can sell on at their own price. And they get access to our logo that they can put on their website and on their, you know, communications around anything they're doing. So they can say, we are an official Sea Shepherd dive partnered school. You would, we'll place them on our websites and stuff so that anybody who comes to Sea Shepherd who wants to go, you know, or do you have any dive schools, they can just jump on. So they've got access to all of our media. I'll post about them on our Sea Shepherd dive Facebook page and things like that. So yeah, it's like a sort of a two-way um, supporting each other kind of agreement. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big advocate for it because, you know, Sea Shepherd, as big as it is, if it was free to join, then everybody under the sun would want to be in on it. Yeah. At least if they're having to pay a subscription, then you're getting the people that are committed properly. That's it. And I think it's about, yeah, having those dive schools that can stand out in a, in a whole strip of dive schools and say, we are the ones to come to if you want environmentally focused diving. And the dive schools that we already have in the program are doing mm. amazing things. You know, they're setting up their own fundraising events and, and inviting some of the Sea Shepherd Apex Harmony crew to come and give talks and, and watch documentaries and engaging with the community and they're engaging with our marine debris team who do beach cleanups and dive cleanups and and organizing their own dive cleanups so they're doing they're doing such fantastic work and we really want to promote them and 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 make them be the standout environmental dive school in their area so yeah it's, it's kind of more of a, a niche thing rather than like a, everyone can be a partner but to be honest like i know i understand that for a lot of small businesses you know, diving doesn't always provide all of the financial input that you need. And some of our dive schools do run fishing trips uh, in order to, you know, support their income and things like that. So it isn't always achievable for all all dive schools, but we hope that the ones that really have that environmental focus will will um, strive to join the program to be able to say, you know, we are the renowned environmental dive school in, in our patch, essentially. Yeah. I can imagine it being a little bit more difficult when you start getting into Southeast Asia, where, you know, one of the one of the main sources of food over there is, you know, fish. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and so... I can see that being a little bit difficult to try and maintain. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the the program was originally in a global market and then we changed it for the Australian market. So it's very specific around, yeah, as you said, like very privileged um, people who have the, the uh, financial capacity to avoid eating fish. You know, it's not for sustenance, it's just um, a pleasure. Um but we are, you know, thinking about potentially in a global market, how that would look. And absolutely, we would have to change some of the rules and regulations around that to um, to fit that market. So that's why it's just Australia and New Zealand at the moment. Yeah, I just jumped on to have a quick look. So you've gone on there and there's a couple of names I know I can see oh, straight away. Is Dive, Jarvis Bay. Yeah. And, um, those those awesome peeps down at Woby Gone Free. Yeah, they're so good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now we've got, a, a, it's a small community at the moment, but we're hoping to grow it. So yeah, I think it's got a lot of potential to yeah. help spread that environmental message and to just to help people really think about what they're doing. Cause it's only small changes um, in the Australian market that need to be made to, to change, you know, the impact that we have. I mean, even diving in itself, can have negative impacts on the environment. You would know being on Kotao, uh, you know, things like Japanese gardens where all the trainee divers go, there's barely any coral there. So, you know, we really need to be mindful as much as we want to enjoy the ocean and we want to experience all those wonderful things and become passionate about saving it. Even just diving as a hobby can have negative environmental impacts. And, um, you know, we need to be conscientious of that. And I think this program is a good way to promote like those being, being mindful of, you know, what you're taking on board ships. So, you know, are you taking things that would end up in the ocean and cause damage through plastic pollution, you know, or just all those little things, just little reminders to to make sure that our sport is yeah, um, yeah. is still good for the environment. 
Yeah, for sure. And like you say, I mean, some Cotown's a brilliant example because in the height of the day, because we, we were there roughly the same time. I believe so. Yeah, I was there 2012. Um, yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got there. Uh, in fact, I landed. Oh, I landed in Bangkok on uh, Boxing Day. Early hours of Boxing Day morning, 2012. Wow. Yeah, I was on Cotown Boxing Day 2012. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we probably know all the same people with a, with a monumental hangover. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, have you met Trevor and Barry? <laughs> I um yeah I know I got stuck in Bangkok I was there for about almost two weeks because it was just so full with with people who'd booked up on the ferries and the, oh, the coaches really? and even the, yeah. the the planes down to Samui. Oh yeah, right, okay. I couldn't get a ticket. Yeah, wow, crazy. So I didn't actually get onto Koh Tao until the start of January. Oh gosh, mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we left probably a beginning of Feb, so we might have just you know we probably had a few beers in Banyans at some point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a distinct possibility. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Kotao, it's 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 a beautiful spot. But I did I did um, you know when you do your dive masters and you have to do that submit that plan and it talks about you know how many divers there are on the island. I think it was what is something like six thousand divers in the water every day. And was it bands or someone like that had mm. that massive dive boat and they were just chuck, it was like a factory farm. They were just chucking dives in the water all day long. And you sort of think like, oh, gosh, you know, such a beautiful remote place and such pristine diving. And the tourism is good in one sense because it brings money and to the economy and things like that. But then the offset is, you know, what is the impact on the corals around there and, and the pollution? I mean, I remember... We were fastidiously recycling our water bottles the whole time that we were there in the recycling points and then found out afterwards they just take them to the other side of the island and burn them. So, you know, it's like there are a lot. Yeah. I think there's a lot of thirst at the moment for that ecotourism and, and things like that. But with that comes all that greenwashing and um, and you've got to be really stringent about who you're diving with and, and what actually are their practices. And I as much as I love my time on Koh Tao, I worry for that place because I can only imagine it's got bigger and there's more and more dive schools there and. You know, how long is that coral going to be? Look at the Great Barrier Reef, you know, like there's so many places now that people say are not not good for diving. And I know that there's all the issues with um, coral bleaching and things like that. But I wonder how much tourism has had an impact on that as well. And, you know, there's very popular places that just get kind of hounded. <laughs> you know, we need to be mindful of, of yeah, how much impact yeah. we're having there, too. Well, I think this this last couple of years of COVID is going to be exceptionally good for the the likes of Kotao and you know and the Gillies, that kind of those areas that get super busy. That's it. Just having a reset. Yeah. Um, I was talking to Elaine from Master Divers, and you know, but at, at, at the height, there was almost a. I think she said it was in the low nineties the amount of dive shops that were available on Kotao. Wow. Ranging from the super big ones to those individuals that were you know booking stuff online. Yeah. Um, yeah. And now it's it's in the low thirties, if not below that. Um, because of this hard reset okay so a couple of years of of not having people there has made a, a significant difference for the good yeah, um, yeah I mean, and, with, and with all the macro that's being found as well it's amazing yeah i mean yeah obviously we don't really want to wish a global pandemic to be the reason that we reduce juice amount <laughs> of dive stores but you know i don't know if you've been to places like sipidan and borneo and those are very very famous but very well protected places and they just have a certain number of um, permits per day. Same, we went to the Cocos Island off Costa Rica. I think it's like 50 people in the water every day. And, and I think 
managing the load like that is probably the way to go in order to protect some of those. I don't, did you ever go to Sail Rock, was it called? It was about a two-hour trip off Kotal. Yeah, you know, limited access, limited yeah. number of people of going. I think we can still enjoy the beauty and we can still get inspired. impact of so many divers in the water yeah it was um it, it's something that happened in um in the similar islands i was um trip leader there for uh, hallelujah for big blue galak nice and um this particular year they decided the government decided that they'd had enough and they were restricting numbers so you could ha you could only get a limited amount of um park entry tickets per day and you had to pre-book them so they massively started to regulate it and i've got to say as though as much as there's so many busy locations in thailand once the thai government decides they've had enough and they're gonna clamp down and and, and do some good they do it in in good style um it was what 2014 i think you could still get onto kota chai island mm -hmm. and they decided no we've had enough no one's going on it good and no one's stepped foot on that island again since great you know they're, they're, they're bloody good at it uh, is that i think a similar yeah. thing happened is that what happened in boracay yeah. in the philippines is that that big party place it actually is that where they filmed no i'm getting confused now is that where they filmed that film with leonardo uh the island because that place oh the beach yeah oh, no, sorry, no, that beach. was um pp pp because that place got trashed as well didn't yeah. it unfortunately but i I think that when when the government does step in and say no nah, enough is enough we're going to shut this down I think that's really important um, and and it makes me think oh that's good that the government have got that you know value for for those areas because obviously tourism like we said is helpful in places that need a boost to their economy but um, eventually we're just going to trash everywhere that's beautiful and no one's going to go so it's important to preserve those areas as well so that we can still enjoy them in the future. Yeah, just a bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you said that, um, just bringing it a bit closer to home, you said you've done some diving down in Melbourne as well. Correct. I've, I've never actually dived in Melbourne yet. Yeah, right. I keep, getting, I keep hearing about it and oh, keep seeing it. You'll have to come down. <laughs> Yeah, it's literally a fleeting visit. I'm there for one or two days and then yeah. I'm off again, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the di I was really surprised because I'd only ever done, you know, fair weather diving on all of my dive travels around the world. It was all very nice tropical diving, which is great. And, you know, you get a massive mixture of macro and micro in those places and great vis and stuff like that. So when I started diving in Melbourne, I was a bit kind of, oh, gosh, you know, this water is cold and it's kind of a bit soupy and um, <laughs> and it's, it's hard and there's currents. But... Actually, on a good day in Melbourne, I would say is, is probably actually my preference in terms of diving because um, the, the types of creatures that you can see are just so fantastic. And, you know, we did, I did a lot of diving when I was working the dive school out in the middle of the bay. And there's the old river that runs down through the middle. And yeah, I think it goes down to about 100 metres. So there's some great walls and all the guys were getting on their rebreathers and going super deep. And you can go out through the heads and they've got a place called the Ship's Graveyard where... There's lots of old decommissioned vessels that have been dumped out there. Um, so there's like submarines and stuff that you can go and dive around. And there's lots and lots of wrecks in the bay because it's quite sort of treacherous coming in through the, they call it the heads, which is a very small space where all the water comes into a large body of water in the bay. Um, and that was sort of fun and I enjoyed it. But actually, for me, if you go underneath some of the piers and just do, you can, you know, you can go down for an hour um, and you're only going down five or 10 meters, but the variety of sea creatures, which is really why I dive, 
is just amazing from like tiny little nudies the size of your fingernail that are like bright pink to sort of seahorses. We've got weedy sea dragons in Melbourne, which has just been on my bucket list since I first got a copy of Blue Planet as a young girl and was totally inspired. Um, you know, and you can be spending hours looking around really deep in the water, really close, tiny, tiny, tiny little things. And then all of a sudden, a great big flat gray ray will come swimming past like an elephant's just walked in the room. And you're like, whoa, hello. You know, it's just a real beautiful mixture. We've got incredible cuttlefish. I think the first dive I ever did in Melbourne, we saw cuttlefish. Um, I think they were either mating or fighting or possibly this, both at once. Um, but, you know, they're changing all the colors. Their body's changing shape. It's just... It's like being in Blue Planet. Um, we've got the the spider crab migration here in Melbourne, yeah. which is fascinating. It just, in terms of in terms of the variety of things that you can see, I think Melbourne has an absolute lot to offer. Well, Victoria as a whole, you know, there's a lot of cave diving that's happening. There's a lot of like sinkholes and freshwater that you can go and dive in. I haven't done that yet, but yeah, you definitely have to come down and explore. I think it's um mm. it's a probably underrated part of the world for diving for sure. Yeah, definitely. Well, my my other half, her um, her brother lives in Melbourne. Oh, cool! So um, no excuses. Kind of a, a three or four day visit. I'll yeah. um, I'll give you a shout. Yeah, for sure. Dive gear with me. Definitely, that would be lovely. Hey, just thinking about um, sea dragons. Are you are you up to date with the um, the uh, what's it called the um, the campaign to save the pier down there? Yeah, yeah, save Flinders Pier. We were down there the other day. Absolutely, yeah. And th those guys are a great organisation as well. Mm. Um, and yeah, we did a, a actually a beach clean with Sea Shepherd Marine Debris Team not long ago, and we removed tons and tons of, of rubbish off that beach because there was a wrecked yacht, I think. So there were some old, like big, massive mooring lines and stuff that was embedded in the sand, and we got four by fours and dragged them all out. So it was quite dramatic. But yeah, the Save, Flinder, Fin, blah, Save Flinders Pier crew were all down there. And um, yeah, they're doing some fantastic work. And I think it's it's really important to preserve those old um, those old places where the, the wildlife is so heavily embedded. I actually was involved with a really interesting project um, similar to what you're talking about. Have you heard about what happened at Blair Gowry with the old wave wall? Yeah, so there, there was an old no, no, go on. There was an old wave wall there um, that was being restored, or they were putting in a new wave wall at the marina. And one of our dive partners called Dive to You um, started this uh, this this program, I suppose, to try and save all of the the wildlife down there. And what they did was absolutely incredible. So what they did was they, they agreed with Blair Gowry that the, the new wave wall, that rather than taking down everything and putting in the new sections all in one go, they'd do it bit by bit. And by doing it bit by bit, it gave us time. So he'd got a lot of divers to get into the water. And we were literally removing all like the corals and the ascidians um, from the old wave wall and then moving them onto the new wave wall. And he had like bungee cords and he trialed all different types of underwater glue to stick the, 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 the corals onto the new wave walls. And one day, so I, I did a bit of work with them, helping them moving it across and it was super successful. Um, and one day, my job was just to relocate, relocate all the animals. So I was just like a little ferry taking all the little nudies <laughs> over to their new home and depositing them. It was super cute. Um, and yeah, so they just went section by section. And, you know, it was absolutely freezing cold. We were in the water for far too long at very, very, very cold temperatures. Couldn't feel your fingers when you came out. But they managed to relocate all of that wildlife. Yeah. And, it, and it took really well to the new wave wall. So that was a fantastic project. I wish there would be more like that around the world. And, you know, maybe if they have to do something like that with Flinders, it would it would be fantastic to try and save all of those creatures <laughs> from losing their habitats. 
I keep I keep keeping my eye on that one because I, I spoke to Charles Reese about it. Oh, it must be six months ago, if if not a little bit longer. Yeah. And um, I saw Jane Jenkins. Is, I think it's Jane Jenkins is involved as well. Um, but I, I should get them on the show as well. And talk to it and talk, talk to about them it in, in detail about it. Definitely, yeah. Um, but it's looking very very positive so far. Yeah, and that's the power of community on. campaigning, isn't it? And raising awareness. Like that's what that's what we do, isn't it? A- mm. Advocacy for for all these important things that. I think uh, it's so easy to just the, just the government makes decisions and it just goes under the radar and we don't notice. So that's a, a real good example of the community standing up and saying we don't we don't want this and we're gonna we're gonna campaign and we're gonna cause a fuss and we're gonna raise awareness and and show the world what's happening and and actually make those changes and stand up against those government decisions. So I think that's fantastic. Yeah. Speaking of politicians and oh, and hiding shit, <laughs> did, have you had a chance to see? Uh, the snippet from Peter Wish Wilson the other day, Senator Peter Wish Wilson. Was it? Was this in, him he's in Parliament? He's, he's from down in Tassie, I believe. Jumping up and down. Um, was that it? When he was, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, what a rock star! What a rock star! I love that guy. He's yeah. a legend. He's amazing. I like yeah. that guy a lot. Yeah. He's probably the only politician in the world that I actually like. Hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, and his Instagram is Senator Surfer, and it's just pictures of him surfing. <laughs> well, I actually put the, I put the snippet on. Um, the scuba goat page just simply because it's a perfect example of how politi- politicians will not answer a ah, direct question absolutely and just give bullshit they're just instead. coached into it um, yeah and i don't mind saying that uh, senator hume you did a great job of being a politician because you didn't answer the question absolutely. full stop yeah. ridiculous they must have a special uh, politician school on how to not answer a question because they all have the same trait but you know it it, yeah. it is amazing and, and people like um peter wish wilson you know that it's so fantastic that he's made it that far because you know it's so frustrating seeing all these people that are, you know don't want to get into a hugely political debate but I, I saw a good friend of mine who's like a very um well-known person in his community a teacher in the local school tried to get into politics just on that very bottom rung because he was passionate about his area that he lived in and he ran to be a local um in the local like local candidate or whatever and he he didn't get in but even hearing his stories of like how corrupt it was even on that very first rung of the ladder how many people were getting you know secretly had their votes were joined together in the background because they were actually a couple and if you voted for one you were actually voting for the other and bribery people getting paid off the lies Mm. promising stuff that didn't happen you just think like how does anybody with actual good heart and soul get to that level of parliament when it's so impossible to even get your foot in the door without being a totally corrupt person and everything all the people at the top just would have to be that level of corruptness right you know it's so frustrating so go go peter for you know managing to swallow some of that rubbish to to stay in there so i don't think i could cope with that i think he's he's got to be one of the very few that actually is trying to do what he says absolutely yeah um it, it kind of it's almost like a reality tv show that the reality is it's oh, like Australian Survivor, yeah. you know? Yeah. Oh, I'm going to do this to help you, but then I'm going to stab you in the back That's when it, it comes to getting rid of you. That's absolutely... That's exactly what goes yeah. on in politics. Yeah. It's, it's ludicrous. Terrible. So I wish him all the best, and I hope he does uh, get some great successes, but he's up against a bloody brick, big brick wall. For sure. That's for sure. For sure. <laughs> anyway, I could go on about politics all day long. Oh, okay. It, so we won't. <laughs> um, let's, let's, let's circle back, back, back around to um, your experiences with Sea Shepherd. So you've been on several campaigns, haven't you? That's right, yeah. So I, so I joined after I saw that documentary, whenever it was, 2015, I became an onshore volunteer for quite some time. But then that, I don't know, I just became obsessed with the organisation. You know, I think it's one of those things where you, you don't know what you don't know. And 
And when I joined and I started watching some videos and clips of some of the things that were happening out in the ocean, I realized just the extent of, of the damage that we're causing. And it's so out of sight and out of mind. And I just became really, you know, fascinated to learn more and, and passionate to do something about it. And um, it got to the point where I was uh, helping out with one of the ships that was docked in Melbourne. And I was like taking time off work to go and, you know, scrub around in the engine room and just do anything I could to be on that boat. So eventually I asked my manager to give me some time off to go on to do an offshore campaign, which she granted me, which is, you know, the, the key reason why I was able to do it, um, which I'm very grateful for. But yeah, so I ended up going on the, the last uh, campaign to the Southern Oceans. It was called Operation Nemesis to Antarctica to, mm -hmm. to oppose Japanese whaling, which has been, you know, very well publicised and probably what we're most well known for here in Australia. Um, and then I jumped straight from that over to a campaign in Mexico called Milagro, where we're trying to save a porpoise from going extinct. It is not the target of illegal fishing, but a fish that is being targeted. Um, the fishermen there or the poachers are using nets that are accidentally killing this vaquita porpoise. And now when I first went out there, I think there was about 50 left. And now they think there's less than 10. So I've been going back to that campaign pretty much every year since um, I went out there in 2017. So it's been running now. We're on the eighth year of running that campaign. And it's it's changed a lot over the years. And our tactics have had to change. Um, but we're alongside the Mexican government. We have um, the military police and the army on board our vessels. Um, because essentially the, the poachers are ex-drug runners. Because the fish they're trying to catch, its swim bladder is is worth, well, more than cocaine. Now it's worth a lot of money on the the black market in Asia. So they're desperately trying to catch this yeah. fish that's worth, you know, thousands of dollars. Um, yeah, so that's what I've been mostly doing. And then I did a campaign where we did a transit um, up to Mexico and we ended up going to that Cocos Island that I was talking about before, off Costa Rica and doing a big clean up there and removing, I think, about 40 tonnes of illegal fishing gear that the park rangers who live on the island had confiscated. So, yeah, it's been an incredible ride. I've got to see some amazing things. and uh, I think, yeah, I think I saw that one when I was... In fact, oh, Jeff, Jeff, Jeff Hansen um, flagged that one. Yeah. He, we, we talked about that one briefly uh, when he was on the show. Yeah, that was... That was a lot, that was a lot of fishing. In, incredible. So that Cocos Island is the most beautiful place I think I've ever been to because there's no one there. It's not a tourist destination. Literally the only people that live there are about eight um, park rangers from Costa Rica and their wives, pretty much. Um and they patrol the waters. It's, it is a designated marine park, but as we know, there's very little policing in those kind of areas, and they're also very popular for illegal fishing. So those uh, park rangers have been patrolling and confiscating, you know, long lines and things like that. Um, but it'd been stockpiling on their island for a long time. They didn't have the means to remove it. So we took our vessel, the White Holly, which is enormous and can take, I think, about 100 tonnes inside her, inside her inner areas. She's got a lot of storage space inside. And we just helped them remove that gear. And, you know, I just, it was mind-blowing. We, we went onto the island and they showed us this warehouse, essentially, that was floor to ceiling filled with these really plastic, you know, that's, uh, what's it called? Po I can't remember, it's polyfiber, whatever, the plastic nets that are just so barbaric. You know, we were getting our feet caught in them. I can't imagine what it would be like for, a, for an animal caught in those nets, just horrible. And then just buckets and buckets and barrels and barrels of longline hooks. You know, there's massive, great big, several inches large hooks that get caught inside the animal's faces. Like, oh, just awful. And anyway, it was so nice to be able to take all that stuff away and think about how much less, uh, you know, 
these fishing devices will be in the ocean, but it's probably only a small, small, tiny drop in comparison to what's still out there. Um, but yeah, it was it was great. And one of the best things about that is that they actually allowed us to go on the island, which is not not normal. Um, but we agreed um, with our captain managed to agree with them very kindly. And we did this walk. We went over to the other side and um, there was a stone that had been carved by um, Jack Cousteau, like back in the day, had like a carving from um, when he'd been there in the like the 80s or something. <laughs> yeah. So it was pretty cool <laughs> to see that. Was that um, is that the same island? Because um, Pete Bethune was telling us about um, how they used. I picked up on you saying the long lines there, and they were catching the fishing vessels that were slinging out the long lines outside the, um, the the borders of the marine park, and then cutting the corner to drag the lines through the marine park, and then almost effectively yeah. pretending to bring them back in as though they were yeah. heading off home. Yeah. Oh, there's all sorts of things that go on like that. Um, I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure if that's exactly in that area, but I mean, I think there's there's a lot of fishing that happens in places that are supposed to be protected just because there's not enough capacity to police them very heavily. So there's a lot of that stuff happening, but I, I've definitely seen in Mexico where mm. they, you know, the fishermen the, or the poachers, sorry, they'll have the legal nets and they'll, they'll pull them out and show us, oh, look, here are our legal nets. But then actually when we pull them out, they'll be attached to an illegal net. So th th they're illegal based on the size of the holes in them. So the small shrimp fishers can have small holes in their nets. Mm. But the, 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 the fish they're trying to catch, the totoaba, is, is a much larger fish. And they call them gill nets. The holes are, you know, like... 20 centimetres wide square um, and they catch the fish by the gills and they're illegal so they'll have their legal nets in the water yeah. and they'll show us that that's what they've got but then actually if we recover them they probably have the illegal ones on the end and then sometimes even on the end of that they have long lines attached on the end of those illegal nets so there's a lot of that kind of trying to trying to trick people and trying to make it look like they're doing the right thing when they're still illegally fishing that's happening <laughs> um, around the world unfortunately which is a huge issue yeah, yeah. It's insane, isn't it? I mean, it, I don't know how it's um, how it's going to pan out because my personal opinion uh, over this last year or even two years of, of doing this podcast, I, I'm more and more inclined to believe that the ocean's pretty damn screwed and what we're doing is just delaying or, you know, um, yeah, delay, delaying how long it is before it's completely screwed. Um, I, I don't think that there's enough good people in the world and people that understand the severity to actually make a, a massive difference straight away. I have to agree with you. And, and it, it makes me really sad. And I, and I remember when I first joined Sea Shepherd, some more um, long term volunteers telling me, you know, you will you will go through this anger and sadness when you really understand the extent and how little is being done about it. So I don't want to be pessimistic, but I do agree that. Um, I agree that there's not enough information out there, but I also think that there's there's willing there's willing uh, ignorance of that. You know, you can share all this information, but then people still want to have fish fingers, so they kind of go, "Oh, that's crap." Yeah, but I'm not going to stop or change my habits. It's it's the link between sharing the information and actually doing something about it that is is the bit that we're struggling with, and whether that's just you know uh, humans being so. Uh, so bred to believe that they are, you know, top of the food chain and we can do what we want or that just that distance between what we're consuming in terms of what we're eating, but also industrial like purchasing, global, global anything, clothing, everything that we're buying, you know, it's all having an impact on the planet. And I think 
there isn't enough people getting the message out there, but even when the message is put out there, there's not enough people willing to hear it. And I think that's ultimately going to be our downfall when you know the facts around, you know, 90% of our oceans are overfished, two football fields of the rainforest are getting pulled down every second, you know, like all these statistics are out there, but people just don't want to hear them. And I think that's the most frustrating thing as an activist or as an ocean lover. Yeah. To, to not just get angry about it and stand on your soapbox and yell and be like, you should do something about this because that doesn't get everyone on side either. It's about trying to <laughs> share the information in a way that's going to actually make people change their habits. And, um, you know, I feel lucky here in Melbourne that I surround myself with other people who have similar values to me, but I, I know that that's a bit of a bubble that I live in. And actually probably most of the rest of the world don't have those values. Mm. So yeah, it's a tough one. I agree. I think the oceans are very, very close to collapse. I mean, and I say that, but I'm also very aware that there's an awful lot of the world that are completely oblivious of the importance. And now that we're moving into that, um, that age, that digital age of, of being able to communicate and it's not no longer communication within your own little village, it's, it's global communication. And, the more that people um, are made aware of the importance of what's going on, then they can start acting locally. And I think we've seen that an awful lot more in the more remote locations as people start to understand the importance. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and I think... So I'm kind of... I don't want to say, I don't want to say I'm a fence-sitter, but um, I'm kind of caught between the two realms of it's, it's fucked and um, we can do something about it. Um, and I think it's just that constant, like you say, you don't, you can't stand and shout and scream about it and make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. And I would agree with that. I think, you know, I think we are a lot closer to the end of our we, planet we than people um, realize potentially. Um, you know, I don't know if you heard recently about like the, the heating, uh, the overheating in the Arctic and in the Antarctic and then the recent collapse of the ice shelf you know, these things are happening incredibly regularly. Um, people talk about these one-off freak events, the fires in Australia, the floods, but they're, they're not one-off events. They're happening all the time. And I think if people could understand the urgency, then we might have more um, more response. But I, yeah, I think people are coming to the party, but perhaps not with the speed that we need. <laughs> well, we can only do what we can do and see how we go. Um, did you get... Have you been on... Have you been to Africa at all on these campaigns that you've done? No, I haven't yet. I'd love to. Um, I know that there's a lot of campaigns with Sea Shepherd off the coast of places like Gabon and Liberia. And um, th those campaigns are fantastic because that's that's really targeting one of the biggest um, issues for our ocean <clears throat> is not, obviously, we're not going after people who are just fishing to survive. <laughs> you know, it's these global fishing organisations that are often very criminally uh, run. And... They're huge, huge uh, trawlers and huge fleets of vessels that are just absolutely plundering our oceans at a staggering rate. And these campaigns in Africa are fantastic because we're, what we're doing is we're, we're not, you know, just going in there and trying to fix things ourselves. We're actually taking local fishing authorities, lo local government officials from those areas and providing the resources as in a boat physically to help them enforce the laws in their waters. So... 
will take the local officials and will approach a vessel that's fishing in the local waters um, and we will board those vessels and we will inspect what they have in their catch and we'll look at their licenses and more often than not they're fishing for one thing but they've caught about a million other things and they've got a freezer full of shark fins and whatever else is going on that's illegal um, and so then being able to issue fines and bring them to justice and try and shut some of those organizations down so yeah I think those campaigns are super important because that's really targeting one of the very top top um destroyers of the ocean if you will like those huge huge fleets um yeah i'd love to get involved in one of those campaigns one day it'll happen <laughs> it's definitely on the list <laughs> hey um d speaking of large fleets do you know if sea shepherd have any plans to head down to galapagos because i have a funny feeling that the, those chinese vessels will be back at some point this year I absolutely agree. Um, I don't know. I'm not privy to that information, unfortunately, but I can only cross my fingers and hope. I know that we did have a very successful campaign there. Uh, was last year, wasn't it? Looking at the, the amount of squid fishing that was happening over the Chinese fleets. Yeah, I mean, poor old Galapagos, like one of the most beautiful places on the planet that desperately needs to be preserved. And its waters just getting plundered. And you know, Sea Shepherd has been operating in that area. We've had campaigns, we had yeah. land-based campaigns over there years ago, like 20 years ago. It's, it's definitely a place of note for us. It's just really about how we can um, organize our campaigns to work with the local government and um, to be as effective as possible. But yeah, I mean, I hope so. I, I think one thing that I wanted to touch on as well that uh, came out of it was highlighted in that that campaign. And for me was another big reason why I joined Sea Shepherd um, is also like what people don't realize is it's not just the amount of plundering of the oceans, but it's the actual human trafficking and slavery that's happening on these enormous vessels. So the, one of the big flip points for me was that the first time I went down to Sea Shepherd as an onshore volunteer and I saw a little clip of a campaign they'd done in Antarctica where they um, found a vessel that was fishing illegally for um, something called the toothfish and it was run by a, a group of criminals from Spain actually but their entire crew were from Indonesia and when Sea Shepherd eventually chased them and told them to go to port and they didn't and the captain scuttled in his own vessel, vessel it was a great documentary called Chasing the Thunder you can watch and learn about that we had to bring all of these people on board our vessel and that they were in you know just grateful to get off like the the conditions that a lot of these people are kept in and is just horrific and i know greenpeace has been doing a lot of work in that area um you know they take people often illegally they take their passports often when they come on board and these people can be trapped on board these vessels for you know seven eight nine years these vessels don't go to port they have other refueling vessels that come out to them and they're literally kept as slaves and yeah. i think people think oh that doesn't happen anymore but the amount of human trafficking that's happening in the in the global fishing industry is absolutely disgusting. And, you know, when that the Chinese vessels were approached by the Sea Shepherd volunteers, I don't know if you caught that, but our volunteers went over and were talking to them. And this is July 2021. And one of the things that they asked our volunteers was, has COVID mm. left China? Because they, they had left China so long ago, they didn't even know. They had no access to media. They had no access to the outside world. They had no idea that the global pandemic had even taken place. And you just think, that's horrific. Like, even if you don't care about the oceans, if you care about people, you, sh you, should, be, you should be avoiding these organizations that you just don't realize. You go and get a can of tuna from the supermarket. Like, the, the impact on the planet and the impact on humans is so colossal behind the scenes. I just really urge people to find out more about what's going on there because that, that was a huge thing for me as well, just to think about 
how, how horrible that must be for those poor people trapped on those vessels for years and years, leave their family behind. And, you know, if you get sick or if you break an arm and you're of no use, they just chuck you overboard because you're not registered anywhere, you're illegal. And the New York Times did an investigation into the number of humans just chucked overboard vessels. Yeah. And it was absolutely staggering, the estimation of people that have just been canned because they weren't helpful. You know, I just think that that, that just blew, blows my mind that that kind of stuff happens in this day and age. People just don't know about it. Yeah, yeah. I was listening to Joe Rogan literally yesterday on the way back up from Canberra. And um, one of the comments that, or one of the parts of the discussion was about um, global slavery. Mm. And there's like nine and a half million people estimated across the globe that are still slaves. It's insane. It's insane. It? Yeah. And, and I think that, that, like you said, I think it's about getting the information out there. Um, but it, yeah, it's about uh, delivering in a way that will actually make people try and change what they're doing and not just go, oh, that's crap, and then get on with their day. You know, that doesn't affect me, so. Yeah, it doesn't affect me, so I'll just completely yeah. ignore it. Or, you know, I would like to buy my clothing from an ethical store, but it's quite expensive, so I'm just going to go to Kmart and buy some cheap crap and throw it in the bin in a week. You know, it's all those kind of things that in society <laughs> we need to change. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Kate, I'm going to take a, a quick uh, run at the bathroom break. Sure. I'll be back in Please two do. minutes. <laughs> Yeah, that's crazy that slavery and oh. people trafficking stuff isn't like, that's just seriously. It's so sad. Like, you just, can't think about it because you get too depressed about the world and you end up doing nothing. And I think that's a big issue as well, yeah. You just get overwhelmed. You know, I think I've chosen, yeah, <clears throat> my path has been ocean conservation, but there's a big uh, crossover between Sea Shepherd crews and the Sea Watch crews. I don't know if you've heard about them, but they're working in the Mediterranean, rescuing uh, immigrants coming over from Africa, trying to get into Europe. And, you know, I just think, God, like, how, how much compassion can you have? Like, I, I feel like I can't even cope with the amount of trauma that I'm witnessing doing my Sea Shepherd stuff to then deal with, you know, what's happening in immigration, what's happening in women's rights, what's happening in LGBTQI rights. It's just bleh, it's so overwhelming. Um, there's so many things that we should be passionate about. And I think that's the problem. People just get, they just go, ah, oh, it's all too, it's all too much. So I'm not going to do anything. But you know, start with one thing. <laughs> I occasionally catch the train to Chatsford, which is the sort of big shopping centre, two train stations down. And just the homeless people yeah. lined up along the mall there. Yep. It's enough to just break <laughs> your heart into pieces. I know, yeah. It's unconscionable. You, you can't imagine how we've managed to turn How How have we got to this point? What yep. goes back? Hello, yes. mate. If we were depressed before, <clears throat> have a go at what's just walked into the room. <laughs> What have you just been talking about? I heard homeless people. We were just talking about the, just being overwhelmed <coughs> by the number of things in the world there are to be brokenhearted about. Yeah. yeah. That, that, from right outside your own front door to what Kate's talking about with people traveling, people just getting chucked overboard on a ship because they're no longer seen of any value. Yeah. Like, mm. really? When did that just become? Yeah, exactly. Okay. How is it's that insane, isn't it? allowed? Or, well, We've it's set not. Up you know, the other thing they do that's really terrifying is they have, um, they have inspectors come on board to inspect the catch or whatever. And there's Greenpeace have got some incredibly scary footage of, um, you see there was this footage of them at nighttime sort of bumbling around on the deck and then they'll sit on the side of the deck and they fall overboard. And they basically poison them and they're, they're just like, they're just wigging out and they're just completely disoriented and they fall off the side of the ship and then the ship will record it as like an accidental, oh, they must have fallen overboard, but they're like deliberately killing these inspectors so they can get away with catching whatever they want like it's so dark like yeah exactly that how do we get to this point where human Jesus. life is just so so replaceable it's so heavy <laughs> sorry it's got yeah. a very depressing Terrifying. turn it's actually marketable 
several federal Australian governments have been have been elected in the last two decades mm. on a policy of turn back the boats. I know. Keep yeah. people out. Yeah. yeah. The UK are specialising in it now. They've taken a leaf out of Australia's book. And there are votes in it. Thousands and thousands of votes. You know, I can still remember so scary. 20 years ago when there was a massive, I think it was a big, it might have been an earthquake in Afghanistan. My boss at the time, people were saying, we should be taking all these refugees, these people who have been left home. He said, no, 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 don't let them in. If you let them in, they'll never leave. Yeah. Oh, so Jesus. Do you understand the human tragedy that's unfolding here? What's yeah. actually happening to people? Yeah. But people just separate themselves from that. There's Absolutely. just a massive humanity over there that's not real. It's yeah. Just, it's just people. So they cut their pinky finger, and it's a tragedy that yeah. they go to the emergency department and go, don't get treated tra- straight away. That's it. Cannot, just don't have the empathy to understand that other human beings have the same feelings as the rest of us. It's quite terrifying. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's that, uh, you know, you, t- you turn a blind eye and it's ignorance, isn't it? Look, it's- it partly is, but it's also partly what Kate and I were just saying. There comes a point where you just can't. You've got no more to give. You can't affect it. Like mm. I get in chats with you, walk in, you see the homeless people, and you think this is amazing. It's terrible. It's awful. And then you realise there's nothing you can do about it, yeah. Unless you change your entire life to to vote. And even then, you know, because you know people who've done that, mm. your impact will be minimal. Mm. And so you end up in this conundrum of well, us in the first world, just by being alive, we make it awful for an awful lot of people on the yeah. planet just by being here. Yeah. Yeah. By being able to go to Coles and buy food. Yeah. To buy, like you said, the tin tuna. Yeah. But, you know, I don't eat the stuff, but not because I have any great moral thing. I don't like tuna. Yeah. If I did, I probably would We'll take it. Never give That's good enough. <laughs> all of the things that are involved, and I don't know how you change it. Yeah, I just don't know how you change it. That's it. And, and that's the difficult bit is how do we change it? Mm. And it's, um, I think it's an impossible feat. And that's why I'm leaning more towards the world is fucked. Quite frankly, it is fucked. But it's 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 how long have we got until it gets to that point where, you know, everyone's walking around like it's a scene off Halo or Star Wars where there's, mm. there's just no natural world left and it's just desert. Yeah. Um, I think it, it's somewhere in our future. It's somewhere oh, in the next no couple question. of hundred years. There's no question. We can't and, turn back what we've already done. No. And the first one that's going to go is, is the aquatic world, um, Unfortunately, but you know as well as I do, there are people in the world, smart people. I know people who are intelligent because I've known them for a long time who genuinely believe that climate change is a hoax. Mm, That's yeah. the environment is not an issue. There yeah. are no problems. That Humans do not mind. cause any issues just by being alive. Yeah. Yeah. I think there is. A- it's it's just insanity. But um, again, I mean, I'm bringing it back around to politicians. But I mean, they're they're there just to protect their own asses for the next four years and protect their jobs. And they're told by, in fact, here's one for you, Kate. Um, well, did, now you guys can get back to the conversation. Yeah, I might actually keep you in this uh, in mm-hmm. this episode, Rod. I tell you, yeah, it's great. Um, here's one for you: the DPI, Department of Primary Industries. Um, they're really starting to piss me off. Um, they come out with all of this social media stuff about all the greatness that they're doing, and jobs, you know, for those people that. who don't know it, the the guy that got. Uh, attacked and killed in sydney last month was was my bestie here in australia uh, simon ellis bless him um no and within 23 hours of that occurring they're, they're putting in drum lines all, all up and down the coast and those drum lines are still going in um, i saw a post about it last week and it was almost like a, a post of pride we're putting drum lines in to deter that was the word i saw was to to deter sharks 
How the fuck does a big hook with a big slab of meat on it deter a shark it is, from where <clears throat> humans are interacting in the water? It is absolutely wild. Uh, like, <clears throat> excuse me. It's, it is it's wild. I th- That campaign, I mean, you must have talked about this a lot with Jono, and he, he absolutely would be the, the fountain of all knowledge with that campaign. But I did, mm. I did go up and go out on Apex Harmony with, um, or go out on Greyness as part of Apex Harmony with Jono, and I learned a bit about it there. And I knew, I knew some of the backstory, but when I actually saw it with my eyes, it is unbelievable that anyone could imagine that a pissy little few few meters long net or you know that's you know on a stretch of beach that's hundreds of kilometers wide is going to do anything to deter a shark and drum lines that are baited are only going to bring sharks in and i knew that that was existing and i thought it was wild anyway but Mm. when i saw like actually how close those drum lines are to the shore we drove along them and you can see the kids playing you can see everyone's down on the beach having a great time you can swim out to those drum lines they're not far offshore and they're baited and they're supposed to catch these like predatory Mm. sharks which is the rhetoric that they seem to have that like there's these evil sharks that are going around attacking humans which is all bullshit uh, the, the whole thing is just so frustrating. How Jono hasn't just lost his mind over it, I don't know. Because, yeah, that is one of the most weirdest situations that the government is spruiking this idea that these these lions that are baited are somehow going to stop all sharks from coming in. No, it's going to attract sharks or it's going to attract small animals that get caught on the hooks that then attract sharks. So then we're just killing more animals. We're bringing more sharks close to shore. More shark attacks are going to be happening. That pissy little net is not going to stop anything. In fact, I was hearing the other day some statistics around most of the sharks caught are caught on the way out. They're, they're actually swimming out to sea. They've already been in closer to shore. Yeah. And they get entangled on the way out. Is catching whales. You know, it, it is so insane. I, I just don't know what the government's rationale is for that. And also the public's perception of how that could possibly do anything to protect them. It, I just, yeah, it's wild. Well, I, I, I called them out. I, I've done it several times now. I've called them out on their social media posts and said, look, I do disagree with the, the, the shark nets. I disagree vehemently with the baited drum lines. Um, and we can go down that route because it's it you know it it's controlled by fishermen and you know i had some fool um try and comment on me the other day um trying to trying to tell me that it was it was correct and and all the uh, sharks that are caught are taken back out to uh, to sea safely and released and they're mm. unharmed and nope i'm like dude you're a fool don't believe what you see on facebook oh, i've not read it on facebook i've seen the uh, reports Clearly, all right. Have you seen the videos that we've got out there yeah. of the sharks being dragged in reverse for over a kilometre? Yeah. They're dead by the time yeah. they get there. Anyway, um, and I call them out and I say, look, dudes, I might be against it, but I'd much prefer it if you came on something like this, like the podcast, and, and just had an open discussion so I could try and understand where you guys are coming from. Because... I mean, it, 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 harping back to Simon, when, when, when Simon passed, we went out um, on the police boat to the scene and there was a new copper in charge that was on the boat with us. Really nice fella. Um, but this, this topic of, of discussion came up briefly and I, I shut him down because he'd been given the party line from the, the DPI that they're doing the right thing when, in fact, I don't believe they are. And I think the thing that's driving it is a the politicians protecting their ass for the next four years because they want the job still 
and the money that comes with it, all the jobs that come with the shark nets and drum lines, all the fishermen that are getting paid to go out and do this stuff. The fact that they're putting out smart drum, there's no smart drum line. No. Yes, it might it might tinkle like a, a you know an alarm when there's something on there, but then you've got to rely on the individual to get out of his bed to get on a boat to go and deal with the situation. And as we know from discussions with Jono, it doesn't happen. No. You know, and if someone doesn't want to go out on the water to release a shark, they don't do it. No, absolutely. And, and you're right. Like the, the the amount of money that's being made, these fishermen. I don't know if there's a documentary called it was one of the Apex ones. I can't remember it off the top of my head. Um, but Shark Call Envoy mm. will talk about it. You know, they're getting thousands and thousands of dollars to go and do this. It is mm. a legal call. And you're absolutely right. I saw it with my own eyes. We were checking. Yeah. We went went around the corner and saw the drum lines and there was the government official boat, whatever, fishermen, and they pulled on a tiger shark, pulled it on board their vessel, and mm. we followed them and we were going to document. They take them out far out to the deeper ocean or whatever and release and Jono was speeding along trying to catch up with them and follow them. And I was getting ready with my free dive fins and a camera and I was going to jump in the water and try and document it. And they they literally, they whipped that boat around so fast, opened the side door, dumped the shark and it had sank before I could even get in the water. And Jono explained, you know, that they, they often will yeah. just kind of disembowel them on the way out there so that they just will get in the water and sink and then all the evidence is destroyed. Um, so, so it's all hidden and, yeah. and going back to what you're saying there about those reports, you know, yeah, sure there are reports out there, but it's like, this happens across everything. This is what's happened with all of the COVID pandemic, you know, who's writing these reports. It's like, there was a report that came out that said that eggs are healthy, but it was commissioned by McDonald's or whatever. Like if someone's writing a report saying that all these things are like <laughs> good practice, chances are it's been commissioned by the people who are invested mm. in making sure you believe that it's good practice. So you know, yeah, that those reports might exist. I mean, sure. The Japanese brought out a report saying that all of this killing of the whales they did in Antarctica was scientific research, and the report stated that whales like to eat krill. Well, we know that from looking at whales. We don't need a report. You don't need to cut them all open and say that. Like, there's so much bullshit reports out there. Just because it's a scientific report doesn't mean that it's <laughs> it's a valid reason to to do something. So, yeah, I think that's a problem as well. That people hang on to that like oh i've got this evidence i've got this piece of knowledge i've got this scientific based evidence report but it's mm. it's the bullshit report anyway that's put out just to to make you believe that what you're doing which you probably mm. deep down know is know is wrong is is okay well it's it, it's a form of propaganda isn't it because what i did notice with the dpi is that um you know like on facebook you can put the at symbol and then tag someone in a post you can't tag the dpi in a comment so clearly they don't need to read the comments mm -hmm. they probably don't bother but they're all about tagging sharks but you can't tag them to mm. have a, an open and frank discussion or invite them on something like this show to yeah. you know put the point across so that we get both sides of the story because at the moment the only story we've got is from the activists and the people that are looking in yeah so why not come on the show like this and and present your findings to normal people not politicians and we can have a balanced debate about what's going on and try and make sense of it because yeah. at the moment i don't see any sense in it whatsoever it's, no. it's ludicrous especially when there's so okay so there's so many other shark mitigation devices that are non-lethal out there there's so much research and work going into that but also mm. you know as a as an ocean lover you, you have to understand you you are going into that 
that animal's home. Like, you know, the, and I think often the surf community, they're really great advocates for sharks. And even when their fellow surfers have been bitten and God forbid, you know, in a fatal attack, they're the first ones to sign up and say, we understand the risks that we're taking when we go into the ocean. So we do everything we can to mitigate that risk, but we're mm. not going to just go out there and like randomly cull things. You know, it's like people have such a massive hoo-ha when, yeah. when people are killing rhinoceros and things in the uh, savannas in Africa, but somehow killing sharks just it, I don't know there's something in the in the psyche of the public and I do run into this a lot with my friends you know even friends here in Melbourne who are too afraid to get into the water at St Kilda Marina because they're scared of sharks it's like how, how, how have you got this like image in your mind that they're all these bloodthirsty murderous like human hating killers I know Jaws has got a lot to answer for in that way but it's, I don't know, the whole, sh the whole shark thing, is, it mm. blows my mind because anyone who actually understands sharks and dives with sharks and, and gets how beautiful they are, how curious they are, and, and of course, yeah, they can, they can be dangerous, but lots of ocean lovers understand the risks in, in being around those kind of sharks and accept them and, and, and also how punitive and, and pointless it yeah. is just trying to cull sharks, like as if that's going to work. <laughs> it's like... I don't know, standing in a garden and killing bees because you think you're going to kill a whole wasp, a bee's nest. Or something. I don't know, it just, it's just ludicrous. It doesn't make any sense at all. Well, I went down a little rant rage there. <laughs> no, it's good. Um, but, you know, on a serious note, DPI, if anyone from the DPI is listening, just get in touch, come on the show, let's have a debate about it. Absolutely. You're know, not going to bite your head off. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Now let's uh, let's change the subject a little bit. Let, tell me about this... Um, this this organisation of yours, the Daughters uh, of the Deep, is it a charity or foundation? Yeah, we're a charity. Yeah, we have. We're very much in our infancy, but um, we've managed to achieve quite a lot in our first year. We, we launched on World Oceans Day last year, so yeah, pretty um, chuffed with what we've managed to achieve. So our original goal was around um, funding women who might not have the uh, economical or cultural societal support to get into diving um, and so we were thinking about just kind of paying for a few paddy certificates and, and helping women get into that diving workforce that could maybe go into conservation diving and things like that. Um, that was sort of our starting point but it's evolved into looking at gender inequality across all marine industries and across all parts of the world as well. So whilst we were sort of originally targeting places like Nicaragua and Thailand and Indonesia and Madagascar and supporting women to get into a marine industry financially, there are discrepancies in things like the number of women that are overlooked to get research grants into scientific uh, marine-based research, or even just the kind of um, societal imp implications of having a female captain on a boat or a female commercial diver. All of those things, you know, this, this exists across all industries, but trying to kind of highlight women in those industries to promote it as, as a more accessible for women and to try and address that imbalance, but also fundraising to support women around the world who aren't able to access those industries themselves. So we have various projects on the go. Our first one was in Madagascar, and with donations that we got mm -hmm. through um, through very kind donators and also selling our merchandise, we managed to fund a girl in Madagascar to go to high school and she wants to become a marine biologist and she's now partnered with a dive school that we're partnered with and they've given her internship and they're teaching her how to dive. And in that part of the world, I didn't know this until we um, launched this charity, but young women who don't have the financial resources to go to school are often married off quite young, often to foreigners as a way of bringing in money to the family. So 
by supporting her to go to school, we, you know, took her away from that situation in which she probably would have just ended up being married off quite young. So we started that project and we've now funded a second woman over there. And now we're looking at, we've got um, internships happening in Thailand where we're sponsoring local Thai women to become dive instructors. And we've got various other projects that we're looking to to launch over the next year. So it's been amazing. We're registered in Europe and in the Americas and over here in Australia. And we've had a really positive support and just in friends buying our merchandise and things like that. And I'm you're super excited to see where we're gonna where we're gonna go. Like one day it would be cool if we had daughters of the deep dive schools where we could, you know, take the local community women in and, and teach them to dive. But so we're, we're mostly at that sort of fundraising and awareness stage, and then partnering with um, organisations on the ground. We're just um, about to launch some work in Melanesia as well, so you can check out our social media for that one because I don't think it's launched just yet. <laughs> um, but yeah, just been a really interesting process of did a lot of interviewing with women working in those industries as well, um, and that was really eye opening and 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 often quite sad hearing some of the stories around you know sexism sexism that occurs. Um, for women in those industries to this day. Um, so, yeah, we're sort of like advocating and, and showcasing women uh, in, in those industries uh, just to try and, you know, make it more more of a, a balanced workforce, I suppose. Yeah. You should maybe have a chat with um, Andy Lewis, Coral mm-hmm. Sea Foundation. Oh, yeah. Because um, he founded the uh, Sea Women of Melanesia. Yeah. Uh, and that one does really well, and it's it's much it's very much in line with what you're talking about there, because yeah. the the ladies up there in Papua New Guinea uh, that are under his watch um, are out doing all the coral research, and it's uh, fantastic. He's he's had several awards for it. Yeah, yeah. amazing. Yeah, I'll keep an eye on our social media. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what's what's next for you? I know that you're shipping out soon, aren't you? Yeah, correct. Next week, I'm back over to Mexico to join the ship, um, which I'm very excited about. We'll be out there for three months and it'll be my first time in the bridge. So I've always traditionally been in the deck team. So first time as an officer. So they're letting me drive the boat. Ah! So very, very excited slash terrified. Get out of it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I know. Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, super excited to do that. So I'll be out in Mexico for the next few months and then, yeah, come back and uh, get on with my speech pathology work for the rest of the year and come back and continue doing my Coast Guard work and hopefully get some more Daughters of the Deep programs off the ground. Yeah. So how does, uh, just going back to the boat there, how does the hierarchy work on the boat? So, well, we just have different um, departments and then we have some department heads. So I was in the deck deck department and then the head of the deck is the bosun. Um, and then we have the bridge department, the head being the captain, and we have the engineering team, the head being the chief. So I did, I think, five or six campaigns in the deck team. And then last year I went in as bosun. And then this year I'm going in to the bridge team. So I'm just the second mate, then there's the first mate, and then there's the captain. So I don't know, like we're all sort of have our own, obviously the captain's right at the top there and the chief and the bosun and then we all sit underneath our different teams we also have a media team and a chef as well so um like as you would know on boats it is a hierarchical structure and it's captain's orders obviously are always what we follow um but obviously we're also an organization and we you know we can have um, internal conversations around what we're doing but um yeah it is it is captain's uh, orders which we will follow in terms of what we're actually doing day to day on the boat yeah and is, is there a structure to each day or is it uh, very much flexible depending on kind of information that's coming in? Yeah, absolutely. So each day is different and each campaign is different. So, for example, in Antarctica, you know, it was, I think, 
a month and a half, maybe two months of just searching for the whaling fleet. Um, very, very frustrating. We launched our helicopter mm. at least twice a day. And every time the captain of the helicopter came and landed, you know, we'd look at his face and know that he hadn't found them and we'd all be disappointed. Then eventually we found them and then we chased them and et cetera. Um, so that, that's sort of how that campaign is. And I should imagine the African ones as well as a lot of patrolling, 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 and then boom, you find a ship and then it's all systems go. The one in Mexico is probably daily um, seeing the poachers putting their nets in the water, recording where their nets are and then hauling them out of the water. So each day is is a combination of kind of patrolling and noting down and retrieving nets and dealing with whatever's come in on the nets. And um, yeah, and, uh, yeah it, can, it can be totally different. Like the deck team have very much that structure, sort of nine to five type structure, whereas the bridge and the engineering team are four hours on, eight hours off. 24 hours a day because they constantly have to check the engines and constantly have to be on watching the bridge. Um, so yeah, it totally depends what you're doing and and what the what stage the campaign is. Um, obviously, transit is very different again because we're just going somewhere. But um, yeah, so it can be it can be varied. It certainly, it's always busy and we don't get days off. So it's <laughs> it's it's <laughs> there's never a dull moment for sure. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. <laughs> Um, well, I think we'll we'll wrap it up there, Kate, and um, let you get on with packing for, for shipping out. Um, is, there, is there any particular way that people can follow the activities that you're going to be involved with? Yeah, absolutely. So um, you can jump on our Sea Shepherd Conservation Society pages to follow that campaign for Milagro. Um, you can jump on daughtersofthedeep.org to follow what we're doing there. Or you can see some of the work uh, through the Coast Guard on AVCGA, the Australian Volunteer Coast Guard Association pages. Um, yeah, follow along, see what we're getting up to there. We'll be posting out on our social media accounts there awesome source well when you get back um give me a shout and then um you can come back on online and give us an update of all the fun stuff that for you've sure. done and you've got to come down for a dive <laughs> i know right well i'm gonna have to wait until you get back in fact bloody hell it's gonna be winter when you get It'll back maybe, maybe maybe in the spring maybe in the spring but that sounds better yeah <laughs> oh thank you so much um for giving me the opportunity to talk about all these things as well it's always nice to be able to share the work we're doing so i'm super grateful thank you so much for inviting me on Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, like I say, you're more than welcome to come on again. I look forward to hearing all the uh, the good stuff that you've done over there. Thank you. <laughs> no worries. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Bye-bye for now. This is Scuba Goat Under the Sea, the podcast for the inquisitive diver.